I am Daniel Lukitz and welcome to Abstract Essay. Abstract Essay is a book magazine that I created that talks about the mystery of the universe through digital abstract painting. Each of those books magazine talks about dark matter, dark energy, big bang, be one and a lot more and today I have my special guest. He's the author of the book Natural Philosophy, no other than Mr. Michael Berry. Welcome to Abstract Essay, and can you please introduce yourself? Hi, my name is um, Michael Berry. Um, I'm founder of Helical, and I wrote Natural Philosophy by Helical. Yes, indeed. So before we go on, let's do the recap of the Natural Philosophy before we go to our next topic. Sure, yeah. Um, well, a brief rundown of the book. Um, it starts with uh, the pre-Big Bang universe. Um, uh, in our model, we were one of the, f we were one of the first models, uh, uh, along with uh, Professor Dr. Neil Turok, um, who is a, um, who was a, uh, if I, I don't, I know, I don't know if this is, uh, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure if this is valid or not. Uh, and, I, and I may be speaking for someone else, but I would like to think that he was friends with Professor Dr. Stephen Hawking. So that's, that's, that's more or less his credentials uh, as far as um, where he was in Cambridge and uh, some of his studying and some of that other stuff. Um, and then, of course, there's Sir Roger Penrose, who is also um, part of that um, circle or group of um, intellectuals who also believe that um, there are um, uh, cycles of universes that exist before ours. So that's also pre-Big pre Bang. Um, and we were fortunate enough to find ourselves in that situation, um, as, uh, and as we go into the book, um, uh, it starts with, uh, the pre-Big Bang universe, which, uh, we say, um, is a, basically an empty infinite Hilbert space. Um, once you have the empty infinite Hilbert space, we fill it with negative vacuum energy, which creates a desitter space, um, from the desitter space comes... Uh, random fluctuations of energy um, that create, uh, if you want to say black holes immediately, um, pro it probably wouldn't exactly be correct, um, but these fluctuations basically happen and they build on each other until there's enough uh, actual energy to collapse into a black hole. Um, once you have these black holes, then these black holes merge, um, and then eventually... What happens is is black holes become too big for their laws um and then it, it's like a logarithmic plateau almost um and then the black hole gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger it hits this one threshold of size and then they become nari black holes which are um a completely different set of black holes that are so big um that they exist with a different set of laws um as far as um like the short trip radius and uh, uh some of these other aspects i'm not 100 sure because i haven't done a lot of research into the area of black holes but i'm just aware of their existence and so um so then you have this very large black hole um and then we we make uh, one of four suggestions for 
uh, why the Big Bang banged, in essence, um, which is um, either due to uh, energy sediments. So um, when energy falls towards a black hole, um, the energy doesn't fall at the same rate. So uh, things like the strong nuclear force gets ripped out first, as far as what I, as, as far as some of the, um, the, the, the stuff I've read. Um, uh, and then from all that stuff comes wave functions and wave mechanics. Um, and then from wave mechanics comes everything else, which is really how we derived all of the other aspects of the natural philosophy. Um, it's all derived basically from wave mechanics. And um, we assert that um, in our book, um, that instead of good and evil um, or, or the dichotomy of, you know, whatever that, that people are mostly familiar with, um, we say instead of two, there are three. Uh, we believe that there is a coherence, decoherence, and ultraviolet renormalization. So um, instead of there being like a good and evil sort of thing, it's like, oh, here's a coherent thing, here's a decoherent thing, and an ultraviolet norm renormalized thing. Um, and so that's that's the premise. That's that's what set us. Set, that's what sets up the story for um, the rest of what, ha what oh, the rest of what follows. Um, Due to the nature of these wave mechanics, uh, the they manifest in the universe in this entangled structure of the universe and substructures of the universe, um, and they they manifest and and it does a much better I believe it does a much better explanation of describing the world around us as when you take something and you reduce it down to two degrees of freedom so up down or us or red green or um or any of these other sort of dichotomies or mostly false dichotomies um then what you run into is uh two degrees of freedom rather than three and as you are aware just as well as i am um, we live in a universe that has three degrees of freedom not two um so um so everything gets derived from that so um so if uh, so if people want to look and, and, and want to ask themselves almost any question you could possibly think of, um, you can look in the book and you can derive some sort of answer or some sort of, um, some sort of solution to whatever the thing that you're asking in terms of the book. Um, so for example, one of the things that we describe is, um, and, and recently this was something that someone else pointed out to me. Not something that I realized myself necessarily, um, but they said uh, they were trying to describe what heat was, or someone was trying to describe what heat was, and they haven't been able to describe what heat is for centuries. You know, they, uh, even in the 1800s, that was the whole thing about um, the thermodynamics and the steam engine and um, all that stuff. Um, that was all about thermodynamics and. Um, I think the 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 uh, what we assert in the book is is that there's this um, that's like so that would be the application of ethics instead of uh, instead of applying ethics into um, a good and evil dichotomy it'd be applied into a um, coherent decoherent ultraviolet renormalized um, system so the best way to describe those three substructures are um, to think of it this way. Uh, harmonic, harmonic would be coherent. So 
when a wave function and another wave function interact and they uh, constructively interfere, um, it makes a bigger wave function, which is sometimes what you want out of whatever it is that you're doing. Uh, when a wave function and another wave function interact and they destructively interact, you get decoherence, which makes the wave function smaller. Um, and then the last option is uh, ultraviolet renormalization, which is um, there are two, uh, I guess the, the, um, the, the, the best way to put it is um, the energy goes from infrared and gets displaced into the ultraviolet. And the reason that that happens sometimes in nature um, is because uh, there's too much energy in the system and it has to displace that energy or um, some, some for, for some other thermodynamic or for some other, you know, reason, um, the wave function um, displaces. So it's not, it's not like they constructively interfere or destructively interfere. It, bas it basically, it would be like, um, if you were to be able to magically sort of put yourself in the fourth dimension or something, right? Like um, that shift, that, that displacement of energy from one system crossing a barrier into another system, crossing a threshold into another system, um, is what we're describing as the ultraviolet renormalization. So the, to sum it up nicely into a nice package, um, we call it harmonic, harmonic, disharmonic, harmonic, and disharmonic, disharmonic. So it's like uh, um, when you have an interaction with someone and the way in the metaphysical, not the actual wave functions, but the metaphysical wave functions, we'll call them, um, cohere. So you have a good experience. You both grow from the experience in a, in a stasis-based way. And, you know, you have um, a situation where, you know, something is... is um, it, it coheres, right? Like, so uh, there's an intuition there that says, like, when wave functions get bigger, because they, like, they, they add together, um, they, uh, like, you can almost imagine, get that intuition and imagine that in your brain and think of that in terms of when you're with other people or when you're um, driving down the street, you know, you can, you can have this sense of, like, these wave functions and you can have this sense of how your interaction with the environment produces these wave functions, both intended and unintended. Um, and I think that that's really the, the key for where everything gets derived from. So um, uh, we derive the universe, the universe drives wave functions, uh, from wave functions we are derived, um, and then from us, um, are higher order metaphysical constructs that are derived. So um, that would be um, things like rigor or um, the notion of discipline, for example, uh, which I define as um, intentful effect uh, generated from a conscious entity and um, conscious entity as um, a less or a less emergent um, system definition for for the consciousness part, but um, uh, but it's it's basically something to the effect of, and this is a paraphrase. Um, it's it's uh, discipline generated from a living system, which and I define a living system as any system that has intentful effect on the environment. 
Very well said, Mr. Barry. An interesting book, people. Uh, available on Amazon and leading online bookstores worldwide. So please do grab a copy and read it. Mr. Barry, what were the earliest theories about the nature of the Earth and the cosmos in natural philosophy? One of the other theories, one of the other prevailing theories that, that uh, I find uh, very favorable, um, and they're actually working on testing it out right now, um, like I said, was Professor Dr. Neil Turok. Um, if you look on YouTube, if you look up Professor Dr. Neil Turok, um, simplicity um, or something, something around simple or simplicity, something to that effect, um, you'll see he, he was, uh, I think the most recent one when he was at the Perimeter Institute is, was his last big talk, I think. Um, uh, but in that talk, um, he talks about how um, there was a, uh, an anti-universe of our universe. So it would be basically the same thing. The only difference is, is that everything would be left-handed chiral instead of right-handed chiral. And he goes through the math and says, okay, um, there's this point where there's this beautiful, um, this beautiful tangent or tangential line that um, describes the um, the passage of the past universe down through a singularity and then through the singularity to our universe, uh, which also describes uh, one of the cosmological problems of um, where's all the antimatter? What happened to all the antimatter? Um, if there, if if at the beginning of the universe there was supposedly roughly about the same amount of matter that there was antimatter or whatever it is, um, then where did all of it go? And so this version of the universe says, well, that's because um, if you and the way he put it was he saw uh, if you solve for Maxwell's equations rather than putting a mirror on the on the surface on the on the uh, the plane of projection or whatever you want to call it. Um, you you just put its inverse function or its inverse state on the other side, which does the same thing as a mirror. So um, so if you were to do that, it solves for Mas Maxwell's equations and and all these other beautiful, elegant um, expressions of like math and and um, physics that 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 he works into the theory, um, and one that is not as well defined and not as well worked out, but still. Um, is one worth mentioning is um, Sir Roger Penrose, um, who believes in the uh, cyclical conformal universe. Um, and um, his version is uh, not exactly as well mathematically defined as far as I know. Um, he believes something in, about hawking points in, in the cosmic microwave background, which, um, which would suggest that um, these universes were bumping into each other or that there were um, effects from one universe to, to another, which is great. Um, and it's great for his theory. Um, but for our theory, um, we're saying that the, that the, that the infinite Hilbert space allows there for universes to literally expand to the point of negligible energy and they would never even touch each other. Interesting. Mr. Barry, how, did ancient philosophers like Aristotle contribute to the development of natural philosophy? Well, um, okay, so originally there was the distinction between uh, philosophy and natural philosophy, which was, um, if, so if you look at the etymology of the words, you see 
Um, philosophy is the study of wisdom. Uh, natural philosophy is the study of natural wisdom. Um, and so there's a subtle difference there. Um, and the subtle difference there is also um, one of the reasons why uh, natural philosophy itself became um, l l not very credible in the 1800s um, because it, it got involved in, in all sorts of other crazy stuff. Um, but, um, but as far as Aristotle is concerned, um, yeah, I think uh, you know, him with uh, Socrates and um, with, uh, I know Plato was the one who, was, who wrote all of the stuff down for, 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 or at least supposedly he was the one who wrote all the stuff down for, um, uh, for Socrates or whatever. But, um, but as far as Aristotle, I mean, like the epistemology thing, um, I mean, of course, um, uh, I'm familiar with Zeno and, you know, his, his whole uh, infinite regression paradox problem, which um, kind of doesn't really make sense, I guess, but it does in a way. Um, uh, but anyways, um, as far as Aristotle, like I said, my, the, the extent of my understanding of his contributions to things like epistemology, um, uh, uh, the notion of um, what is, you know, what is real, what is, uh, what is in quotes true, uh, what is valid. Um, yeah, because if, if I'm not mistaken, Socrates was more of the, uh, um, the Republic, I think was more um, the, um, was good sort of thing. And um, weirdly enough, our, our answer to Socrates would have been, what is stasis? What is, so instead of what is, what is good for the state or what is good for the individual or what is good for religion or what is good for all the other possible permutations of whatever, um, our, pos our solution uh, was what is good for stasis, which wasn't even one that Socrates had even considered or thought of. Um, and that's kind of because um, the word we found that the word stasis, um, if I may just like put a little bit of, of something in there. Um, people have seen the movie, the fifth element. Uh, they'll understand exactly what I'm talking about. Philosophers have been looking for the words or the ability to describe um, the living system for thousands of years. And we honestly believe that we've been able to describe what it is that describes that fifth element or, or that living system. Um, and that is uh, the technical definition would be differential geometry of energy in the environment into a system of critical points defined by entanglement structure. So how did natural philosophers in the Middle Ages integrate religious belief into their scientific inquiries? Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of like what I was talking about, about like, um, you know, the notion of um, the natural world versus the, the different, the big, okay, so natural, natural philosophy really started taking off in like the 1600s or so, roughly around the time of the Enlightenment. Um, this is right around the era in which Newton and Leibniz and all those uh, mathematicians slash natural philosophers um, were putting together um, that whole notion of um, 
rigor and how it found itself and um, the analogy of um, breaking down problems into smaller steps and um, all the other sort of associated things that, that went along with um, Newton and most importantly, well, not most importantly, but amongst the most important would be uh, Locke's work in addition to Newton because they were both friends. Uh, I don't know if most people are aware of that. Uh, John Locke and, and, and Isaac Newton were uh, maybe not friends, but in the same circles of, you know, I mean, they, 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 they were like, let's say acquaintances at a minimum. Um, yes. And so to answer your question, um, uh, the Middle Ages would probably be prior to this whole Enlightenment thing. And this is a, that it's at a time when, or in an era when, um, when, um, uh, when people used to think that spirits were, or smells were spirits. Um, and so when you see those apothecary, uh, when you see those apothecary faces, um, those like bird looking things, um, they used to fill that with things that smelled uh, to them good, in quotes, good. Um, and, uh, so these natural philosophers would, um, I mean, it was just, it was just, it was, it was, it was the wild west, basically, you know, people, people, people's theories and, and their, their natural, more specifically, their natural philosophical, um, ideas, um, were not grounded in something uh, rigorous or something, um, uh, something, you know, something, something, uh, what I can use as rigorous. So, um, uh, and so as a result of that, a lot of the philosophies were very strange, very um, outlandish. Um, you know, it was very difficult for people to put together um, any semblance of like, um, you know, it, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was King Louis XIV who uh, lived in this huge palace that had a bunch of animals like and, and even at that point in history, um, we were aware of the fact that there was things called bacteria and that you had like pores and that like bacteria got in your pores. And this is why natural philosophers at the time said taking a bath is an awful idea because if you take a warm bath, your pores open up and that allows for more bacteria to get into your body somehow, uh, which they didn't obviously have a good sense of like what blood cells and all these other things. So um, the moral of the story and really to get, answer your question again um, is um, the natural philosophers kind of, uh, folded in this uh, this very strange, unrigorous way of um, of uh, approaching natural philosophy, and so as a result of that, you had things like apothecaries. And um, I mean, if you really consider like where we came from as a species, you know, as far as um, coming out of this this like um, you know this lack of uh, of rigor, like I said, or this lack of um, self-awareness maybe, or um, ultimately would be a lack of discipline, uh, intentful effect over the environment because um, it, everything was random and, um, you know, there's a lot going on and, um, you know, the, you know, people were, you know, worried about lightning bolts striking them and killing them and it being vengeance from God or something or, you know, whatever. I mean, just uh, even even down to Benjamin Franklin uh, when he was uh, approaching um, Leyden jars and uh, uh, basically the whole notion of 
um, you know, creating electric shocks and what is static electricity and all these other things. People thought it was blasphemous that, that Ben Franklin was putting his, you know, his key on the kite and, you know, electrocuting it and, and, and trying to manipulate what they believed to be um, the work of God, you know, that like, like that, that they believed that, um, you know, that God was somehow that involved in like everybody's life and was like, you know, doing those things. And like, now that's to say I, I could be wrong, you know, um, um, in that, you know, I mean, some people believe that there's that level of personal, uh, personal involvement, which I mean, is, um, I mean, it's a great belief and I support it completely. Um, uh, for myself, I, I just, um, I just understand that there's like so many things to do and, oh yeah, this is this, I think this gets back to the book. Um, uh, there's so many things to do at the end of the book basically is an outline for what humanity could do in order to preserve stasis, uh, for 10 to the 10 to the 100 years, which is, um, basically, uh, as long as the universe exists. Very well said, Mr. Barry. But before we go on, I want to shout out my top 10 countries listening to me out of 70 countries. Number one, United States. Number two, Philippines. Number three, Canada. Number four, Germany, South Korea, Argentina, Singapore, India, and last but not least, United Kingdom. Thank you so much for supporting this podcast because this podcast is created to empower mystery of the universe to discover. So, Mr. Barry, what were the key advancements in astro- astronomy during the era of natural philosophy? Um, well, okay, so uh, I guess it kind of depends on where you're at in the world, obviously. Um, uh, during this whole like natural philosophical era, um, and this is what, the, and the reason that we, one of the reasons that we wrote this, wrote this book is because we're trying to bring the, the, the concept back to people of natural philosophy so that people engage, um, in, in, in this kind of discourse or whatever, again, um, but, um, some of the astronomical sort of things that were, uh, I'd like to say Galileo was probably in that, uh, was in that era, um, da Vinci was probably in that era. Um, so basically the, the, the contributions of the original natural philosophers was, uh, to take, was the, was the incredible, incredibly unique idea of taking a spyglass and turning it from the battlefield to the heavens and looking up at the stars. So as far as contributions from, uh, natural philosophers, the original natural philosophers, uh, it, it was really the it was, it was really the um, the birth of the notion of um, of rigor of um, scientific questioning of um, of you know like I said uh, all of the the Euclids and the uh, um, the Archimedes and the um, I, I'm actually looking at my uh, I have a book here called um, God created the integer all else was the work of man by by professor dr stephen hawking and it's got all of the proofs from um euclid to alan turing um all the famous all the famous um proofs from from euclid to, to alan turing um and it's it's a great book i mean it's probably really expensive now um but it's 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 it was in my opinion it's it was professor dr stephen hawking's greatest work um 
um, or at least book, you know, book that people could read because um, uh, On Time was not one that many people bought. Uh, it's a great book. I listened to the audiobook. Um, I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge fan of Professor Stephen Hawking. But um, um, but I really honestly think that this this was one of one of his biggest contributions, just um, to be able to um, take all of the 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 most influential uh, thoughts and ideas that came from proofs from you know from Greek times to modern times um, uh, is was was it's you know it's like it's like it's like the first person who like you know in Sumeria who 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 takes um who takes the uh um the, the lists of all the animals and then like starts cuneiform and like starts taking cuneiform and like writing letters to people and stuff you know so um yeah so as far as natural philosophy and, and the contribution to astronomy and all these other things um you know I, of course i'd like to put galileo and um some of these other um, amazing um natural philosophers that have preceded us um and all the way up until uh newton who um gave us um a, uh, principia mathematica was actually called philosophy naturalis um and so this is kind of also an homage to isaac newton in the way that um in, in terms of bringing that whole thing back um in the way that yeah we hope that people will engage in natural philosophy again you know that, that instead of instead of looking inwards to themselves and saying, what do I believe? What do I think? They look out to the natural world and they say, what does the natural world say? What does the natural world believe? What does the natural world say about these issues? Um, and, you know, it's, it's like what we derive, this whole right to stasis and the defense thereof um, is one of the things that we, that we honestly believe comes from um, more or less that natural that natural system, you know, it, it's, it's like uh, what you see in fish, uh, fish have even fish engage in tit for tat behavior. If a fish goes over and messes with the house or the, the cave or whatever of another fish, um, the fish will actually go over and ruin the house of the other fish. I mean, they, they, it, it's incredible that this like tit for tat behavior is something that is um, so evolutionarily basic that it, that it, that it, exists in fish you know so um i guess the moral of the story and wrap it up is um you know we are very hopeful that um that that with this book um there will be many natural new natural philosophers that come out um and um you know write you know more philosophical treatises and um you know, engage in more um scientific style discourse um, with their theories in hopes that um, we'll be able to bridge the gap between, like, for example, the foundations of physics and physics. Okay, Mr. Barry, lastly, how's the legacy of natural philosophy influence contemporary science and philosophy? Yeah, great. And um, great, clo yeah, great closing question, too. Um, uh, um, everything, after, uh, everything after Newton um, is... Now, and here's, and here's something to keep in mind. The Greeks actually had steam power. So, believe it or not, when we lost the ancient understandings, the information that Greece was able to manufacture or generate, um, they made it all the way to wave-particle duality, and they made it all the way to steam.
So um, when we lost ancient Greece and we lost all of that information, uh, it took us till the 1800s to come back to where Greece left off. So uh, we had known about you know steam engines and all these other things for, since since Archimedes, um, and um, and it wasn't until the 1800s that that all of a sudden people were like, oh wow, you can do stuff with the thermodynamics and um, you know the the whole English powerhouse thing, and um, then the French, and then blah 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 blah. Um, but the moral of the story is, and to keep it short, um, is uh, the legacies that have been given by natural philosophers along the way um, are literally probably some of the most, um, so, and, and, and I mean this in terms of like the, um, the, uh, the person who came up with the scientific method was supposedly, if the story goes, if the story goes as, as I had heard, um, was actually a Islamic scholar who tried to build a dam, wasn't able to finish building the dam, and as a result, they were going to kill him. But then he was like, oh, no, I'm crazy or I'm blind or something or so, some, something was wrong with him. Morning, people. See you soon.